Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Panther Podcast, where birders talk birding. A while ago, when I invited Steve Hampton to be a guest on the podcast, I was thinking more about his interests in gull identification and climate change as it affects birds as the primary topics of our conversation. In the meantime, the group that's responsible for naming birds in the Americas, the American Ornithological Society, or the AOU, announced that it's accepted the recommendations of its ad hoc committee to change the official English names of birds in the area who've been named after people to names more descriptive of the birds themselves. It was fun to hear about the experiences of Steve as a member of the committee and to get his viewpoint on the recommendations. Help me welcome Steve Hampton to the Bird Banner Podcast. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. I've uh, I've known about you, I think, pretty much since you moved to Washington, and uh, we may have met somewhere, but I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time, but I just hadn't gotten around to it until I saw your post on gulls, on your, uh, is it the, the Cottonwood post or whatever mm-hmm. you want? I, uh, Diane Jurgensen Quinn, our birding club uh, does everything person, got the, a link to that out and I read it and I said, this is a nice approach to gulls. You know, it, it kind of takes you, walks you through the common gulls month by month with, you know, photos to demonstrate the points. And I, you know, I don't know that I, anything was earth shattering in it, but it was just a nice way to organize my thoughts around the common gulls around here. How did, how did you come to, to do that? Um, well, thanks, Ed, and thanks for having me on, on your podcast. Um, it's a delight. Um, girls, how did I come to doing it month by month? Oh, it was 100% because of these Olympic girls that, that fade to having basically white primaries. Um, I mean, whiter than the glaucous wing gull in the field guides. They basically have glaucous wing primaries, uh, in, you know, by May, May, June, July, when they're very faded and tattered. And then they start molting in their new primaries, and you can see them coming in, and they're they're almost black. They're very dark, and so you see these white, these tattered white feathers being replaced by these black feathers, which I see every I think it's July, August, September when that's happening, and that really illustrates that yeah, these birds are not glaucous wing gulls. These are hybrids, and they're coming in with some very dark feathers. So that just led me to go month by month just to illustrate that point. Uh, and it works well for all the gulls because they all, I mean, they take three to four years to mature and they all get very tattered in spring and summer. And then they look very fresh in the fall and winter. Hopefully, like gulls have been a big passion of yours. Uh, our gull identification has been a big passion passion of yours. What's different here than in California? I thought, no, probably the, the Olympic gulls are the big difference. But what, what have you noticed difference in what gulls you see here versus you were in Central California area, I think. Yeah, I was in Davis near near Sacramento in the Central Valley. Oh. Uh, great gulls. They're actually um, herring in California are would be the most common in the winter. The, 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 the biggest difference, not just with gulls, but with all birding, is, is there the best birding places for the sewage treatment plant in the landfill. Here... The, <laughs> I get to bird in much more beautiful places. My species counts are about the same, but the, the birds are uh, what I consider more special, like, I don't know, very thrushes, ancient marlettes, things like that. Uh, and then the scenery. You know, I'm, I'm out at Point Wilson uh, on, on the north tip of of the of the peninsula here where the Strait of Juan de Fuca meets Puget Sound, and I'm looking at 
Victoria, the San Juan Islands, Mount Baker, the Cascades, Mount Rainier if it's clear, and the Olympics behind me. And it's just, you know, even if I don't see a single bird, it's just fantastic to be out there. Ah, you moved from a, from a very dry, hot place to a relatively dry, not-so-hot place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was by design. Um, my, my wife is, is, is from Tacoma. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, so I, I've been coming up here for, uh, over 30 years visiting her, her, her whole extended family is, is, is from that area. Um, so, and they're still there. We have a son in Seattle. So yeah, we have a lot of connections and, and my, 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 my wife's whole family is up here. So I, I've been coming up here a long time. I, uh, Gosh, 20 years ago, I used to bird with uh, Ruth and Patrick Sullivan. Oh, yes. Yeah, my Patrick Sullivan story is uh, I, I moved here in 1987. Uh, okay. Got out, the, got out of the Army and was a family doctor, moved here to start a practice. And I had just begun birding a couple of years before that, really a year and a half before that. And so when I moved out here, like every bird was wild and new and so exciting. Uh, and I took a field trip with Thais Bach. Uh, you, you may not know Thais, but she was an older woman at the time. So, uh, and and with the other field trip leader at Nisqually uh, was Patrick. And he was like 12, maybe, maybe 13, pretty young and just all over it. I mean, and I can remember things like... Uh, uh, Theus, who was an extraordinary birder herself, uh, was kind of mentoring Patrick a little bit. And she, now, Patrick, let's slow down a little bit. Let's take another look at them. <laughs> As Patrick screamed out, "This and that, you're just going wild!" And uh, and it was really fun to see Patrick uh, grow up as a birder. Yeah, really, that's great. I I met them. I met them over a lady back golf, and it, it, back in that time, Ruth was one of the few people with a camera. So um, I got in contact with Dennis Paulson, and he said, call this woman. And I came back, and I, I told my wife about <laughs> Ruth and Patrick, and she's like, oh, I know them. I used to babysit Patrick. <laughs> That's funny. That's a good story. Yeah, very nice. Talking about origin stories, you, you've you been a, a birder from a young age, it sounds like. I I, uh, I read on your uh, website that you were birding as a, you know, before you were 10 years old. Tell me your birding story. How did you become interested in birds and, you know, become a Yeah, I started birding when I was seven. Well, I was really into nature. I, I was in a Ranger Rick magazine. I'm, I'm going to give a lot of credit to, to that publication. And... And then I was, I was, I was also into sports. Like as a seven-year-old, like I had baseball cards and was memorizing sports statistics. And so I saw, and then I got this, I got this children's field guide, which at the time, the only children's bird books were just a straight East Coast bias. Blue Jay, Cardinal, and, and then in a small print, they would say, in the West, there's this other bird not, not pictured. And I'm like, what? What is this? And so I, I had to get um, an, an adult field guide. So I, I got the golden guide, the the one with the the beige one with the three buntings on the cover. I I that was my wife's first and forever field guide. I saw that picture on yes. your website, and it just made my heart warm because uh, she used exactly. that field guide uh, as she taught me how to bird using that field guide. Yeah, it's a great guide. So I, I got that as a seven-year-old, essentially. And, um, and of course, in the back, in the index, there's little chip boxes. Mm -hmm. 
for, you know, for your life list. And I thought, oh, what's this? And, and so I got really into that. And, uh, you know, I would take walks from my house. I, I birded mostly by myself. And then my mom connected me with the local Audubon group and um, did some field trips with them. And then I've kind of been birding ever since this then. This is where? This is here in California? So this was in Los Angeles. I grew up, okay. I lived in the L.A. area for the first 25 years of my life, then in Davis for the next 30, and then I've been up here. So, yeah, I've been, I've been migrating north slowly, along with scrub jays, black phoebes, and lesser goldfinches. Global warming is moving you this way. Yeah, yeah well, it, it is. <laughs> Okay, uh, so you got uh, involved with the Audubon Society as a child, and uh, sort of how did uh, your birding, you know, story go from there? Oh, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I I birded in ebbs and flows um, as a as a as a young adult in college. Actually, less so. I, I majored in government public policy, um, but then. Uh, but then after college, you know, I, I I would always plan our family vacations around birds. <laughs> well, even as a child, I would orchestrate our family vacations around birds. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's just I, you know, I I my 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 lifetime goal, which I've achieved, was to see seven hundred species in the ABA area, not including Hawaii, because that wasn't part of it at the time, and um, and. And it took me a delightfully long time to get there. And and these people that get there in like three or four years, I feel so sad because the journey was so fun. I I hear you. I was the same way. I I thought, yeah, that's. I thought when I started birding first few years, I thought, God, maybe I, you know, I know, I know, I knew a couple of people who had seven hundred species, and back then that was a lot of species, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, and I thought, God, that's just was so far outside my scope of reality that uh, I thought that'll never happen. But then, you know, you get to 400 and you get to 500 and then you take a vacation and there's a whole new. And it, yeah, it's a, it's a lifetime of, uh, of accumulation of memories. Yeah, really. Yes, cool. definitely. Yeah. So <clears throat> I did it the same way. Uh, slow until the end. And then I've the last 10 years, I've now, now that I'm retired, I'm uh, traveling more and and. Uh, you know, chasing more. Anyway, uh, so you've got a, a fairly, uh, you know, not a crazy different birding story. Got into it as a kid for lots of reasons, and and uh, but then you got then you went to graduate school in more of a of a ecology sort of. Uh... Well, I I got a PhD in natural resource economics. Um, so then I got a job with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, which was basically. Uh, using my economics um, for bird restoration. Uh, so I, I worked for California Fish and Wildlife for 25 years. Most of that, I was doing natural resource damage assessment, which is basically looking at uh, assessing injuries to wildlife and habitat after an oil spill or other pollution event. We had regular meetings with actually with Washington Department of Ecology. Um, and so Basically, we, we, we sue oil companies, take the money, and do restoration projects. And because in California, a lot of the biggest oil spills were in winter offshore, it was a lot of seabird restoration. Around uh, marbled marlette, common mers, um, we did projects 
um, we did rat eradication on Anacapa. Um, we did projects actually in New Zealand, Haida Gwaii, Alaska, Baja, California, because we were following the birds to where restoration made sense. Um, I didn't get to travel to all of those places. I, I think it's very difficult for a state employee to travel out of state. But I did go to the Farallons multiple times and Enyanuigo Island and the Channel Islands um, just to see project sites. So that yeah. was that was fantastic. I had a guest on oh, a couple of three years ago who was a real activist for trying to get the, the rodent eradication in the Farallon Islands. Is that Farallon? 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 How do you? Which Farallons. In the Farallon Islands. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, did that ever happen? <laughs> so that was that was that was our project. Um, it hasn't happened yet, um, and I was I was very involved in that. We allocated the first eight hundred thousand dollars toward toward the project, which ended up being all used up in some preliminary studies. That project has had a long saga of um, political obstacles and feasibility issues. I think all the obstacles are resolved. Um, of course, they've burned through all the funding dealing with those obstacles, so now they're looking for additional federal funding, but I think the path is almost clear to finally implement it. Um, yeah, and I'm already retired from Cal Fish and Wildlife, and <laughs> the project still has not been done, but I'm still optimistic that it will be. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you know, there are good examples of islands elsewhere. I mean, the, the model of how to do it is pretty clear, I think. It, it's been done It's been done highly successfully in a lot of places. Yeah, we brought experts from New Zealand. They happened to be in California for a conference, and we wined and dined them and took them out to the islands and got their advice. Yeah, good. Uh, so hopefully, sometime, <laughs> that will happen in our lifetimes. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> there's been a, a number of things you've done in your career. Most recently in the news uh, has been the bird names for birds, or I'm not sure what the, the, that that's the cloak. Yeah. Yeah. You were involved in the, in the uh, AOS's uh, subcommittee or committee. I'm not sure what kind of title you had for evaluating, coming up with a recommendation on that. Uh, how did how did you get involved with that, and what was that like? That sounds like it must have been a really, you know, grueling but fascinating uh, process. Uh, grueling and fascinating are are both correct. Um, yeah. So so bird names for birds is the name of uh, of a organization um, that is kind of separate. Okay. Um, I think they were involved in getting the AOS to look at this originally. Um, but we were many steps further down the line. So they convened um, over a year ago an ad hoc committee um, from, it was a, there were, I think there were 11 of us. So I, I was part of the ad hoc committee on English bird names. And our task was to make recommendations to the AOS regarding bird names. English bird names only, not scientific names, and um, and with an aim to address issues of equity and inclusion. Um, so we weren't looking at other poor names like red-bellied woodpecker, ring-necked duck, or Connecticut warbler. <laughs> People always bring up things like this. It's like that was outside of our purview. And um, the, the committee had 11 people. I was one of them. There were people from South America, people from Canada, 
um, people from different backgrounds, ornithologists, birders. I was the sole representative from a, basically a government resource management agency. Um, and, um, and I was the sole member who was a citizen of a native tribe. Um, so I, I don't know how they invited me, but they invited me. Um, I agreed. It was very difficult. It was, a, it was, it was a very difficult committee at the beginning because we didn't know each other and it was all on Zoom. And it's just amazing how much is lost when you're not in person. And so we're dealing with a subject that has sensitivities. No one knows anybody or where they're coming from. And it just took a long time for us to gel as a group. Um, but when we finally did, we finally came out with, I don't know if you've looked at, at our recommendations, which are posted. And, um, and I'm, I'm really pretty happy with our final recommendations. You know, I mean, I'm not, I don't agree with every bit, but I'm, I'm pretty happy and I'm pretty proud. And then I'm completely, uh, I had no idea where this was going to go. Uh, I had no idea where our committee was going to go. I had no idea where the AOS council was going to go. Um, but we presented it to AOS council and they, they basically promised to adopt um, all of our recommendations. So let me clarify for the listener what the recommendations are, because there's three, and they're equally significant. Okay, so the first one, which everyone has heard about, is to is to change um, change the bird names of birds that are named after people. Uh, and so that's gotten a lot of airplay. And we actually suggested different tiers based on various criteria. And that's, those are implementation details that, that are out of my hands now. Um, the second was, was to create a new committee. So our, our, our committee, the committee I was on, we're, we're done. But our recommendation is to create a new committee that will be in charge of English bird names. So that's, that, that, that won't be the taxonomy committee. Up, up until now, the taxonomy committee has done the taxonomy. They're all taxonomists. They've done lumps and splits and um, scientific names. And then they've kind of done English names as English names have become official. A lot of animals don't have official English names. Um, and birds don't even have official Spanish names. But they do have, they do have official English names. And the American Ornithology Society had this great one of the people we were talking to said we find ourselves as the as the stewards of these names so we the taxonomy committee i don't know if people realize this but it's a small group of people they they serve life terms and they choose their replacements from um from within if there's a vacancy the pre-existing members choose the replacements so they you know, I mean, organizationally, they're structured to resist change and to be, I mean, by definition, they're extremely insular. We wanted a, a, an English bird names committee that that wasn't subject to the same concerns that taxonomy is. Because um, English bird names is more in the realm of education, culture, public outreach, and ultimately conservation. Um, so we wanted a committee that was responsive to the public. Um, so our recommendation was to create this new committee. They'll have term limits. And finally, they will, our last 
recommendations is they will involve the public in soliciting public opinion on and suggestions for new bird names, which the AOS is actually quite excited about that. Um, a because poll? That you has think a Twitter the, poll was the way? I'm just well, <laughs> a Twitter poll is, then it would be the low, the low bar. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, we, if it's done right, we view this as an opportunity to reach out to the general public and get people excited about birds and to educate people about birds. Because we, we suggested, you know, have, have, have some materials, you know, a web page or something for each species where you communicate ecology and life history about that species and, um, and where, where people can read that, learn about the bird and suggest names. And, and I've seen, you know, on social media, little exercises like this and people come up with wonderful names that I could have never dreamed of that I just go, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. So I, I'm really excited about the fact that there will be this separate committee and the fact that it will involve the public. Um, it's a lot of work. The AOS is actually as nervous about the logistics and the amount of work involved. Um, they will be relying on, on volunteers to help run these things as they, as they do for all of their committees. Sure. Um, so that's, that's what I'm really excited about. Well, it sounds like you guys, you know, had a, a fabulous experience. I mean, 11 people who don't know each other came together and sort of came to a common ground. It's, it's, that's kind of interesting in itself. Uh, and, and, and I love the idea that taking the English naming process out of the hands of, uh, people who are expert in the, you know, molecular structure of subspecies and stuff into a, a group of people who have more of a cultural language, all sorts of other realms of expertise making names. Those are brilliant that you guys came up with that. I think that's really great. Uh, and uh, my story about this, my uh, my girlfriend is is not really a birder, and she, she uh, we met uh, a few years ago. My my wife had died, and I started going with her, and she knew I was. I warned her. I said, "I'm a birder. You know, <laughs> I'm going to be birding a lot." And so she went out with me a fair bit, and she said, "Well, how am I supposed to know what a Cooper's hawk is? is that, what is a Cooper anyway? You know, is that the guy? Isn't that a, a that have to do with handling copper? You know, I don't know, or making barrels or whatever." It is and and uh she says that these names don't make any sense. Why why don't they say, you know, I like red-tailed hawk. I like that name, you know, red-headed woodpecker. That's a good one, but these names are horrible. <laughs> she just thought it was a real obstacle to learning the learning to be a birder. And and I get her point of view. Yeah, yeah. There's there, there's a great line in uh Braiding Sweetgrass by by Robin Wall Kimmer. Um and and she says that um, she was talking about a mountain that's named after a person, and but her grandfather calls it by 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 its native name, which means cloud splitter, or some something along those lines. And and she says, um, yeah, na nature things in nature deserve names that reflect their natural essence. And um, I think that's an expression that we actually used in our recommendation. Yeah, very cool. Uh, anything else, Steve, you wanted to talk about that topic before I move on to your recent Antarctic trip? Oh, um, I mean, we could talk. <laughs> the bird names topic is fascinating because it brings up all kinds of different issues. Um, but we can we can save that for an, another time. No, uh, give me a couple of the issues that uh, that are most uh, that you're most uh, 
Interesting. Well, so it's inter it's it's fascinating inter issue because it's largely symbolic. Um, I mean, we're not talking about actual uh, threats to conservation or threats to habitat or habitat restoration. We're talking about a symbol. Names are symbols, um, but yet um, you know people have a lot of strong emotions about it. But for me. I mean, it, it's pretty clear that, that younger people and people of color are generally in support. Uh, and and the, the most vocal detractors are almost exclusively people over 65. Kind of not that surprising, I guess. Even when Ukiavik voted to change its name from Barrow to Ukiavik, Alaska, that, it, that vote pa passed by five votes out of hundreds of votes cast. And it was mostly the younger people that wanted the traditional name and the, and the, and the elders that wanted to keep Barrow, um, which says, you know, the, I guess as we get older, there's this incredible value toward, you know, toward the familiar, but, but at the same time, you know, birding, ornithology and, and the environmental movement in general has a huge diversity problem, which makes no sense because everyone loves birds. Um, if you ask anyone if they like to take walks outside, and most people will say yes, no matter who they are. And, and so, so we need to be doing all we can to appeal to, to those things that people love. And people love birds. I don't care if they're left wing or right wing or whatever. And, and so here we have an issue where I mean, that, that's what got me involved in this, is when I saw that all these younger people and people of color wanted these names changed, I thought, oh, you know, there's, there's, there's a unified opinion here. You know, if we were marketing a product as an advertisers, we would say, oh, this is an, this is an issue. We have a whole market segment here that's, that has a feeling. So that to me tells me that there, there's something there, there, and that, that, and that needs to be addressed. And, and I've written about that personally with respect to my Cherokee background, um, but I, I think I think it's not to be taken trifling, and and I think we need to think about how the birds conservation and the environment in general can appeal to a broader range of the public because it should. Yeah, yeah. Your Cherokee background has been obviously important to you. I've I've. I haven't read everything. It would take me months to read everything in your <laughs> blogs. You're prolific. Uh, but uh, I, you obviously have uh, a, a strong value on your heritage and uh, have written extensively on many topics uh, related to that. H how has that played a role in your, just in your life and your career and your birding story? H how, how has that uh, influenced you? Um. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I was always raised with the idea um, that that um, we should listen to marginalized people. So if all, you know, if all trans people or all black people or all Latino people or all, you know, if, if people are raising this an issue, our gut reaction is not should not be to react against it. Our gut reaction need to understand 
un understand why they are raising this issue. Now, these people may not be using, may not be speaking our language. They may not be using their word choice, may not be our word choices. Um, and people always critique. <laughs> I mean, you see this a, a lot, you know, uh, people critiquing how oppressed people are protesting, you know, well, they shouldn't do that. That's, that's this, uh, they, they, that's too aggressive. They shouldn't do this. That's too disrespectful. They shouldn't do that. You know, and, you know, Ka Kaepernick shouldn't take the knee. Um, but, you know, telling, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we have a right to tell people how they should, what they should be upset about or, or, or how they're communicating. Our first obligation is to understand, you know, why so many people are saying that. And so that's, that's one thing I've got. I mean, I had, I, I probably had several dozen ancestors on the trail of tears. So, so that's one thing. Um, and then the second thing just is, is the whole indigenous concept of nature, which I'm still, I mean, I'm so much affected by, um, you know, white European culture. Um, which is much more have have dominion over nature, um, but the the indigenous perspective is that we are part of the ecosystem and we need to be caretakers and restrain our exploitation <laughs> um, to to you know be a respectful part of nature. And yeah, I recognize that humans, like brown whales and elephants and and buffalo, have an ecological impact. But we, we need to be very cognizant of that and recognize that that we are just one of, you know, millions of creatures. Yeah. I read your blog post on uh, the Homo sapiens as a boom uh, bust cycle, I think. A uh, boom bust species, yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, pretty interesting. Yeah, you, you basically talk about how the population kind of crept up, crept up, crept up, and now has exploded and is going to peak in the next few decades. And uh, if it follows the path of other species, will go down as fast as it came up. I, th I thought that was interesting perspective. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that. I mean, obviously, we have no idea what it's going to do, but yeah, it'll be a different world. <laughs> Yeah, the birds might be happier. <laughs> yeah, they might be. I wonder. I wonder what we will evolve into. That's that's the next question. What will be the next? Uh, the, you know, those. I don't. I'm not an anthropologist. Those Homo erectus, and there's been a bunch of uh, 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 primate species uh, leading to humans. Uh, uh, my religious friends may. Hate oh yeah. But, uh, anyway, uh, uh, leading to leading to Homo sapiens, and yeah, the the. Makes sense that there'll be a, a next uh, next species to evolve sometime in the next uh, few hundred thousand or million years if uh, if there's not some extinction event. <laughs> Antarctica. Yes. Okay. So off that miserable topic. Yes, I I was uh, fascinated by uh, your. I, I think I I don't know if I see it on Facebook or somewhere your information about your trip to. Antarctica. I went there last year. What what company did you go with? Uh, so uh, we went with Cheeseman's. Oh, okay. I've heard good things about that. Yeah. Did Did you go to South Georgia? I yeah. I went to South Georgia, uh, except I didn't get off the boat. I spent five days in COVID isolation in my uh, oh. view obstructed room 
fairly sick on the boat. Oh, no. Uh, so I went to the Falklands and I uh, got to see uh, South Georgia from my boat window and from an occasional fresh air and exercise uh, foray to the top of the boat. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was a, a miss on mine. But yes. Were you on the ABA trip? I was on the ABA trip, yes. Oh, wonderful. So with Alvaro and Ted Floyd and all those. Yeah, George Armistead and the and the yeah. rock rock jumper guys. It was a terrific trip. Yeah, yeah. I, if I went again, I would want to go on a, a more dedicated birding trip. Although we had a core of a dozen or so birders on this on this trip, but most people were photographers. Yeah, um, it was it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, there's no darkness there hardly, uh, and yeah. so you know, I, I'd you know wake up at four o'clock in the morning and kind of itching to get outdoors and i go outside and there was this always early in the morning there was this group of uh, we call them the brits they weren't all british but the two three or four british guys and a couple of guys three or four guys from that general area of europe who were out there night and day they were insatiable they they had spotlights they were spotlighting birds in the little bit of dark that was there really and they were always i never got I, no matter how early I got up, they were always out there. Uh, and they, it was really fun. When we were near the islands, they would have us close all our drapes because we couldn't have any lights showing on the boat. Okay. Yeah. This was yeah. more in the cruising. At, at sea, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was out there a lot, but it was, uh, yeah, it takes a lot. But, you know, I, I spotted a few, uh, I think I, I think I spotted you know, three out of our five Kerguelen petrels. Mm -hmm. A Frenchman told me it's pronounced Kerguelen, yes. not Kerguelen. Okay, that's good to know. So I'm going with that. But um, yeah, you had to be on your toes to pick those guys out. Yeah, I, I got glimpses. We didn't get as many as you. I think we had like two or three, and a couple of them were specks, you know. The, they the they really like that. They they really like that spot about four hundred yards off the starboard or part starboard or port side. Mm -hmm. yep. yep, and they're tiny. Yeah, it was great. The 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 time in Antarctica was just magical. I mean the the colors on those icebergs and the, yeah. the algae and lichen or whatever the lichen I guess on the rocks was just yeah just incredibly beautiful and the penguin colonies were just. We're fun. Yeah. So so we were we were the first boat of the season. We were at, too. Yeah. At at both places. Um and then at um but we were we were we're probably the last boat of the season at and most of the beaches at South Georgia that's allowed to land because oh. avian flu was arriving just mm. as we were getting there or just oh, as wow. we were there. And they were closing beaches right behind us um wow. we were not allowed to go to st andrews was the only one that we were restricted from but now we we, we landed at nine beaches i think at south georgia in the course of six days and now eight of those nine are closed wow to to landing at least uh -huh. um and uh trying to get more details out of there i've still not heard of of much impact to penguins, um, although it's hard to imagine how they would avoid it. 
Maybe they um, have some, you know, they're, they're quite different than a lot of others. Yeah. Maybe they have some innate uh, immunity or resistance, but not immune. Well, I mean, the penguins in South Africa did get hit, um, but those are a different different genus. Um, the Interestingly, it looks like the elephant seals, um, the elephant seals' pups are being hit the hardest. Oh, wow. Uh, which is a bit surprising. Um, there was a big seal die-off in Peru, just prior to this, um, so this 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 virus is mutating constantly. Um, so it's it's kind as, of as has a certain viruses are prone to do, yeah, yeah. And so it has a certain unpredictability everywhere it goes. So yeah, you wrote about the Caspian Terns in Puget Sound just being decimated. Uh, yeah, and you know I got to spend a lot of time with Dan Roby on the Antarctica trip because he was on the boat with me. Oh, okay. And he's one of the world's experts on Caspian terns in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, hmm. he thinks this was probably the bulk of Puget Sound's Caspian terns. Yeah. Um, he also said, interestingly, that they, I mean, as desperate as they are for a protected colony site, he said they need multiple colony sites because they, they naturally bounce around. Because, uh, especially up here, um, the bald eagles will will learn about them, or coyotes will learn about them, right. and clue in on them if they stay in the same place for too long. Mm. So uh, that's the problem in Puget Sound is is there's just not a lot of, of options for them. Yeah, and the Navy included didn't help. No, I'm sure it didn't. And the the, the colonies in the Columbia were the whole fisheries issue and that and moving. Yeah, so they. That. He was he was telling me that they still have an island dedicated to them there with five hundred pairs, but they haven't produced a single chick in like three or four years. Wow, food they think or uh, maybe predators. He's he's not quite sure, but he he says you know they're they're stuck on that one place and they can't really move to another place, and that would wow. be better for them. I don't know. Steve, that is interesting. So tell me some of your highlights of your Antarctic trip. What was the, the coolest <laughs> stuff you saw? Oh, my gosh. Every day was a lifetime of highlights. And and I got to say, I was not, I mean, everyone kept saying, you know, this was this a trip of a lifetime that you were dreaming about? And I'm saying it was beyond my dreams. I wasn't I wasn't planning on going uh, until my, my birding friend here in Port Townsend, um, Barry McKenzie, had been planning this trip for years. Mm -hmm. And he approached me six months ago and said, "Hey, there's a vacancy. <laughs> you could you could be in my cabin." And um, and he, you know, he 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 talked me into it. I I talked to my wife, and um, we we talked through it, and I and I I went, and um, yeah, so it was beyond my dreams. And you know, every day was, I mean, as you can say, I mean, you go to South Georgia and Antarctica, and you just can't go wrong. Um, Every day is, you know, the most amazingly beautiful day. It is. Except, just except for the weather. <laughs> Did you have rough weather? Uh, I mean, there were good days and there were some rougher days and it was usually pretty windy. What was the Drake Passage like for you coming home? For me, it was, it was wild. Yeah. Oh, coming home, it was, of course, it's a sideways swell at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, it was a very big swell, but I don't think there were white caps. 
Um, we, we did a lot of rocking, but I'll tell you, the last two mornings, we had 25, 30 albatrosses behind the vessel at all times, mm-hmm. um, including the big ones. Yeah. Um, Royal and Wandering. And then those... The white-backed ones. The all yes. The thing. Oh, yeah. We ended, up, yeah. we ended up calling them the big A's. Um, yeah, cause it'd be a bunch of smaller albatrosses mm-hmm. and then, and then these, these big A's, the Royals and the Wanderings and, um, which I guess the Royal or Wander- Royal was split, split into Northern and Southern while we were on the trip and Wandering was split four ways while we were on the trip. Wow. Um, so these were all snowy albatross, a cool name. Well, I like the name Wonder too, but those, you know, just watching them. Um, was pretty mesmerizing and breathtaking. And I, um, I went ashore at Griffithkin, um, the whaling center, which right. was a very shocking, emotionally, uh, shocking experience. Um, mm-hmm. it reminded me of, it reminded me of a child, as a child of visiting Dachau. I mean, wow. cause the ovens and the tanks are still there. I mean, they, they liquefied. 100,000 whales and put them in yeah. tanks. Yeah. And it's all still there. Um, there's a museum there, though, where they have a, um, a stuffed wandering albatross um, tilted on end with its wings uh-huh. I've seen up and down. Yeah. And um, standing, gosh, its head was as big as my head. It was an incredible bird. Yeah. I, I, uh, I remember the the thing I remember most about those birds is that the other albatrosses are big birds. I mean, they're big birds, and they they fly through the air with a with a grace, and they don't flap much. But they the never big, flap. But the big albatrosses are like those in like with arthritis or something in slow motion. They just barely turn and very slowly arc, and it's like. They look almost, they look arthritic sort of in how they move, just very creaky. I mean, beautiful and graceful, but I mean, yeah. you cut them out just by the way they moved in the air. You could tell it was one of the bigger albatrosses. I mean, they just, yeah, different. Yeah, yeah, like a giant glider. They never flap. I, I, I don't think we, I, we would go hours without seeing these birds flap. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I ever saw one flap. Yeah. Maybe. I, it, it, super cool. Super cool. So, Steve, what's it, what's in the future for you? First of all, you have several websites. Just uh, uh, <laughs> briefly, uh, 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 you know, what are they all I'm, about? I'm, I'm, I'm ready for this question. Okay. I, I made a list. <laughs> okay. So, I have two, I have two blogs. Um, the, the Cottonwood Post, which is um, about birds, climate change, and environmental issues. Um, and that's at the Cottonwood Post, the Cottonwood Post, all one word, dot net. Um, Memories of the People is about Native American issues. Um, and that's at Memories of the People, all one word, dot blog. Um, I could send you these afterwards. That's and then, um, um, and, and actually, bird name stuff is at both of those blogs, um, slightly differently. Um, and then I, I actually am the, um, creator and manager uh, or one of the administrators of three Facebook groups um, that people might be interested in. Uh, Birds and Climate Change is one of them. You could just go on Facebook and type in Birds and Climate Change as a group. Uh, Second group is called Fox Sparrows. 
So after I obsessed about gulls, then I obsessed about fox sparrows. Okay. Um, and hey, the West Coast is great for different fox sparrows. Um, and then the last one is, is a fairly new group we set up. It's called Cascadia Advanced Birding. Um, so Cascadia Advanced Birding is a Facebook group. That one's, I think we've got it on invitation at the moment, but I think you could query it or you could go through me. Um, and that, that one, so there's, there's some pre-existing Facebook groups for Washington, um, that are mostly kind of photography driven. This is more birding and conservation issues. Discussion of conservation issues is allowed. Um, and it's, it's probably 50, 50 Canadians and, and, and U.S. So we got a lot of our, of our, um, fellow birders from Vancouver and Victoria involved in this group, which is great. Cool. Cool. So you are uh, prolific in your writing, I, I have to say, and 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 thoughtful. I have, yeah, you know, I love that. Uh, I had a blog for a long time. Drpullen.com was my blog, and I wrote about kind of top of the mind family medicine issues. I was a, I'm a family doctor, and I, you know, whatever was kind of if something's in the news, I'd kind of give you know just a roof brain chatter sort of top of top of the brain sort of stuff about things, drugs, treatments researched i had fun doing it but i was fairly superficial I, I have to say i didn't do a lot of research i wrote from what i knew and i just wrote this is a family doctor's perspective on that this is a family doctor's perspective on this and that from you know experience and background rather than uh, a lot of uh, a lot of detail your your posts in general from my observation are really heavily researched and thought out and you you put up a, a blog post often like every month or two and they're really good extensive things mine were more fluff <laughs> but i but I, have well, to, I, I love the way you do it thank you thank you yeah i mean you know i i get onto these topics where i kind of nerd out and and want to do a deep dive and you know my, my target audience first and foremost is is myself Mm -hmm. because I'm just trying to learn about a topic that, that there's a lot of chatter about. Um, and so, um, yeah, thank you. And, and, and writing is now my thing. You know, that, that's how I, that's how I process things. Nice. So, so what's in the future for uh, Steve Hampton? What, what in terms of birding, in terms of career path or retirement career path, what, what are you looking forward to most? Writing. Yeah, frankly, um, I've I've gotten connected to like the Port Townsend Writers Conference and other things like that. Um, trying to improve my writing, um, writing now for some magazines and stuff. Um, thinking about a, a book on birds and climate change. Um, I'm also working on a book on Native American issues. Yeah, so writing on on different topics. Um, I'm. With, with respect to birds and climate change, I'm trying to keep up to speed with the scientific literature on it. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because a lot of it uses eBird, Christmas bird count, and beating bird survey data. It uses yeah. data collected by birders mm -hmm. to tell the story of what's happening with birds and climate change. And, uh, and, and that's not really getting communicated back to the birding community you know, to a, to a lay readership, it's pre being presented in academic journals, uh, which, you know, which has its own stilted language when it's in an academic journal. 
Yeah. So it, it's it's cool to see that sort of thing because, you know, I have to say there are some things that I really try to do on eBird that that uh, I try to avoid propagating the null bias. So, so in other words, you know, what birds go out and if you don't see anything good, you don't put out a list. A lot of guys are like <laughs> that. You know, uh, we'll go birding. You spend a half an hour somewhere and, you know, I was looking for a uh, uh, kestrel or I was looking for whatever I was looking for. I didn't find those. And, you know, it's just a bunch of common stuff. I'm not going to submit that list. And so there's a bias that these rare birds are everywhere. <laughs> uh, the target birds are everywhere because, you know, look, 80% of the people who go there get it. No, 80% of the people who post an eBird list there get it, you know. Uh, so I, yeah. I try to, I try to, if I, if I'm birding, I put up an eBird list and uh, that's my. Zero point. data points is a data point. You know, um, but the 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 most I mean the, the thing I'm most impressed with on eBird now are the trends maps. I I don't know if you've seen that. It's it's under the science tab. Mm -hmm. um, that's where they have the beautiful population maps that are red and green and purple and everything. Um, and and now they have these trends maps which are phenomenal. And um, and I've read a little bit heard heard a little bit actually in the Washington Ornithological Society they had. Um, What's his name? John Fitzpatrick speak mm -hmm. about it. This was several years ago. How they did that um, using e they did not use every eBird checklist. They only used eBird checklists from regular birders who mm -hmm. go to the same spot repeatedly, and who and and who they know are good birders. And I said, "Well, how do you know who's a good birder?" It's like he's. He said the computer knows. <laughs> yeah, I, I read about that. They can say, if you go there and you spend half an hour and you didn't see a, or hear a Bewix run, we're going to ignore your list. You know? Yeah, basically. Like it was more complicated than that. But yeah, yeah they, but, but, but so they call it down to a, a certain number. And they didn't even use the numbers. They just did presence absence. Okay. But they've come up with these phenomenal trends graphs that if you compare them in situations that have data, like from dedicated surveys of, mm -hmm. of trends, um, they, they map pretty well. That's cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. So our eBird work is is important for conservation as well as just uh, knowing what's going on in terms of birds yesterday. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, Steve, thank you so much. It's been really fun to talk with you. I'm hoping to get uh, meet you sometime in the field. I'd like to get to know you. Sounds like uh, it would be fun to get down to your area. Uh, Thanks again. Uh, how? What's the best way for people, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for a listener to reach out to Steve Hampton? Um, they can email me. You know, I, I, I have my own, as a writer now, I have my own website, oh, okay. which, which has all of the blogs and contact information. That's um, the best way. I'll put a link to that website in the, in the podcast notes. And in yeah, the and so that's, that's um, stephen-carr-hampton.com. So S T E P H E N dash C A R R dash Hampton dot com. Okay, I'll I'll have that in the uh, podcast notes. Terrific. Yeah, Steve, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You have a great winter uh, in your fabulous new home location. Yeah, thanks. And you're in Tacoma. I'm in Tacoma. Yes. Okay. I, I lived in Puyallup for thirty some years. Worked as a family doctor there, and uh, and moved to Tacoma when I when the when I wasn't working much and the commute wasn't a problem. But I love it here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I mean I'm pretty familiar with that area. So my in laws live in Tacoma, um, in uh, Fort Crest area. Yeah. 
South of the Narrows Bridge. You've probably visited the Doom Peninsula now. It's such a cool new area. Oh my god! So I don't think I've been there. I don't think I've been there since they've done a lot of of work there. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been to Point Defiance, but I don't think I've been to. I don't remember it being called the Doom Peninsula. We just call it Point Defiance. Yeah, Point Defiance is the is the big point, but you know yeah. the yacht club is there at the base of Point Defiance at the end of Commencement Bay is the yacht club. And this is is, uh, is that where the restaurants the, are? The older, yeah, the old Osako plant. It's the old slag from the Osako plant and the Superfund rehab to it. Uh. And they made that into a park, and it's just it is such a cool place. Uh, all year round, but especially in, in you know, fall and winter for seabirds. Uh, maybe the coolest thing, though, is some of the young, you know, Charlie Wright and yeah. uh, Will Brooks uh, have really discovered that the gravel parking lot that the city uses as a kind of a, I don't know, staging area. They put vehicles there and things as a big gravel parking lot up above Doom Peninsula. And from the gravel parking lot in May is you can probably see more uh, Western tanagers in migration than anywhere in the world. It's just I, I've seen Charlie's counts of like 2,000 in one morning. Over 5,000. They had 5,500 one morning. He and Will had 5,500 one morning, and they didn't even get there early. They missed a lot of it. it wow. Was just, it was just, it, it's mind-blowing. And and besides, it, the other mind-blowing thing is how they can even see these guys and identify them <laughs> overhead, but that's a separate issue. But I, so I... Uh, a guy like me can see hundreds and hundreds in the morning. It's so crazy. I I knew Will Brooks from California. Oh, okay. Cool. I was I was a guide on Debbie Sherwater's boats, and Will was a a youth guide. Uh huh. When he was like he he didn't have a driver's license yet. His dad would come. He was like fifteen. Mm hmm. Yeah. He's a pretty extraordinary kid. Yeah. Oh yeah. He he's uh, in graduate school in the East Coast now. And, yeah. Uh, studying. Oh, so I I forget the. Doing molecular studies on some birds in the in the uh, Southeast Asia islands. I can't remember exactly yeah. where Papua New Guinea or something. Anyway, uh, cool cool to watch these young people grow up and become fabulous uh, birders and young people. Yeah. Anyway, Steve, thanks again. You take care. Bye bye. Thanks, Ed. See you later. Well, that wraps up the Bird Meter podcast episode number one hundred and sixty six with Steve Hampton. Thanks for listening. Either check the episode notes or the birdbanner.com blog post about the episode for links to Steve's website where you can contact him and for other related information. I'll also put a link to the report of the Ad Hoc Committee on, on English Names in both of these places. I think it's worth reading for anyone who's interested in hearing the official report so you can base your thoughts on the topic on first-hand information rather than just a scuttlebutt going around on social media. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day.